You are listening to Cyber Law Monitor, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now, let's get started with your host, Andrew Baer. Hello, and welcome to Cyber Law Monitor. Today, we're going to talk about recent developments in transatlantic data transfers. My guest today is Christopher Dodson of Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Group. How are you today, Chris? Doing well, Andy. How about you? I'm doing well, thanks. And we certainly have an exciting topic today that folks on both sides of the Atlantic are, are focused on. So to begin with, we're going to be talking about transfers, data transfers to third countries, especially from Europe to the United States. Chris, uh, can you say a few words about why we're concerned about this and what do we mean by data transfers? Sure. So uh, anytime we move data out of the EU to another country, uh, we either have to move the data to a country that has what's called an adequacy decision. Uh, So essentially, uh, the, the EU has evaluated the data protection laws of that country and has determined that they are roughly equivalent uh, to uh, the, the protections that the EU provides. So we either need to transfer to a country with an adequacy decision, or we need to make use of some additional transfer mechanisms uh, that are available under the GDPR. Um, so then the question is, what triggers that? Uh, well, the, the, there's obvious transfers, like you move the data from the EU to, for example, the United States. Um, that, that might happen, for example, if you're a U.S. service provider, you have a, a customer in the EU, uh, and you're hosting your technology service, you know, say on an AWS instance in the U.S. Uh, so anytime your, your EU customer uses your service, they're logging into the U.S. And, and the data comes here. But it can also be a little more subtle. Uh, for, for example, Uh, Again, say you're a U.S. service provider, you have a customer in the EU. Well, let's say they're hosting the data that you're helping with, or maybe you're hosting it for them uh, on an AWS instance in the EU, but you need to access that data as a service provider, you know, to provide support, for example, to, to your EU customer. Well, your accessing of that personal data from the U.S. is considered a transfer uh, under the GDPR. And so you either need to uh, have an adequacy decision, which we don't have in the U.S., or you need to use uh, one of the other transfer mechanisms that are available under the GDPR. That's a really important point, Chris. So when most people talk about a data transfer, what they're thinking about is, as you said, a transfer of where data is stored. But uh, if data is stored in Europe, but supported or serviced using a follow the sun model and accessed in the US or some other third country that doesn't have an adequacy decision, we still have to find a legitimate mechanism for data transfer under GDPR. Is that correct? That is exactly right. So this covers a lot of companies and a lot of use cases. Chris, can you take us through some of the transfer mechanisms that exist? Sure. Well, at the moment, we have a, a limited number. <laughs> uh, so 
the probably the most common one now are the standard contractual clauses, uh, which are defined by EU law. Uh, they are there's a new version that was released relatively recently uh, that is fairly modular and fairly flexible. Uh, the downside of that though is that it actually takes a little more work uh, to to get them in place. Unfortunately, uh, there's also uh, binding corporate rules, uh, which are less commonly used, uh, they, they require approval from uh, an EU regulator. Uh, it, it takes a number of years usually to get them in place and it's, it's quite expensive. So that, that tends to be limited to very large companies uh, that use BCRs. Uh, and then there's consent. Um, you can, in, in some cases, rely on consent uh, from a data subject, although that is generally discouraged. Um, you, you don't want to overuse that. That's a great point, Chris. So a lot of people looking at these transfer mechanisms will think, well, gee, I can just include um, a consent buried in my user flow or buried in some click wrap agreement or privacy policy. But as, as you noted, under GDPR, consent is what the EU calls a derogation. It's meant to be used sparingly uh, and is not meant to be used to validate bulk transfers of data. Uh, that's basically correct, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And it, it has to be explicit and informed consent. So it's it's gotta be up there in front and made very, very clear. And of course, as with any consent, uh, one of the downsides is it can be revoked. Um, so your, your data subject can say, no, no, <laughs> not, not anymore. <laughs> and obviously companies uh, want to discourage that even though they're not, they're not allowed to. And on the subject of informed consent, there's been some guidance uh, from the EU that uh, there has to be some sort of explanation of the risks of transferring data to a third country. It's, it's, it's more than just saying, I agree to let my data be transferred to the United States. Exactly right. Now, you mentioned uh, binding corporate rules. I, I, I think uh, in both of our experiences, most companies use standard contractual clauses annexed to their contracts to provide the necessary transfer mechanism to transfer data from Europe to the United States, but some companies use BCRs. Can you uh, give us your, your insight as to how widespread that is and how practical an alternative it is for companies? Um, it, it, I wouldn't say it's widespread. Um, certainly there are a number of very big companies uh, that have BCRs in place. In fact, I believe the EU makes available a list of, of all the companies with approved BCRs. So it's it's definitely a, a finite number. Um, the, the, the benefit of BCRs is they're put in place for your entire enterprise. So once they're in place, uh, they're a fairly efficient way to transfer data within all of your corporate affiliates. Um, but, you know, as I said, the, the downside is that it's, it takes a long time and it's very expensive uh, to get them in place initially. So this is possibly a practical alternative for large multinational companies, not, not so great for everyone else. I, I think that's, that's right. Got it. That's, that's definitely helpful to know. So now I suppose we should turn to the Schrems 2 decision, which underpins a lot of the uh, tumult and furor and 
transatlantic data transfers over the last two years. I, I think that's that's a good idea. Why don't you give us a, a summary of Schrems 2? So Max Schrems, as some of you probably know, is an Austrian privacy activist who has challenged the transfer of data from the EU to America for the last six or seven years. He was the uh, he, he was the impetus behind the invalidating of the original safe harbor. And in 2019 and 2020, he tried to challenge the use of standard contractual clauses as a transfer mechanism for data from Europe to the United States, as well as the US-EU Privacy Shield, which a lot of companies were using to uh, legitimate the data transfers in place of standard contractual clauses. So this went up to the highest court in the European Union, the European Court of Justice. And what the uh, Court of Justice held was that Privacy Shield was invalid as a transfer mechanism. And specifically, it was invalid because it could not provide essentially equivalent protection for the data of EU data subjects in the United States as they were enjoying in Europe. And this is, this is a legal standard that a transfer mechanism has to provide an essentially equivalent level of data protection. And what the uh, court and prior decisions were specifically concerned about is the system of mass surveillance of EU communications uh, by US uh, intelligence and law enforcement agencies. And the world first became aware of that in 2014, 2015 because of the Edward Snowden disclosures. And after that, uh, you had uh, Safe Harbor and then you had Privacy Shield. Privacy Shield attempted to set up some uh, method of recourse for European data subjects who felt that they were the victims of US surveillance that was inconsistent with EU law. The problem was that the privacy person under Privacy Shield was lodged in the US Department of Commerce, which is uh, an agency, of course, of the executive branch of the US government, the same branch that was, in fact, conducting this surveillance. And so the EU Court of Justice held that the recourse to the privacy ombudsman and uh, the other recourse mechanisms provided in Privacy Shield were not sufficient to essentially guarantee EU data subjects independent recourse, recourse to an independent tribunal to hear their concerns because the privacy ombudsperson was controlled by the executive branch. Um, and these basic executive orders and other laws, the FISA law and whatnot, uh, were not altered by the framework that set up Privacy Shield. Uh, so, and basically the US, uh, excuse me, the um, EU Court of Justice held that this did not provide uh, sufficient limitations on US surveillance and inquiries by law enforcement authorities. It did not provide recourse to an independent tribunal for EU data subjects and therefore Privacy Shield could not provide EU data subjects with an essentially equivalent level of protection here as they would get in Europe. Now, a lot of eyes were focused on the decision. I remember I was up at three o'clock in the morning in, uh, in July 2020 reading this. A lot of eyes were on that decision as to whether the EU Court of Justice would also invalidate 
the use of standard contractual clauses. A lot of companies didn't certify the Privacy Shield because they suspected that Trems would successfully challenge Privacy Shield just as he did the uh, pre-existing safe harbor framework. Uh, the EU Court of Justice in the Schrems 2 decision did hold that standard contractual clauses could continue to be a legitimate data transfer mechanism, uh, but there was a big caveat there. And the caveat was this, that the parties to a data transfer needed to evaluate the laws in place in the country of the data importer, in the United States in this case, to determine uh, what the surveillance regime was and whether those laws could in fact provide an essentially equivalent level of protection. If they couldn't, standard contractual clauses would not by themselves be a sufficient transfer mechanism. There might need to be what the court called supplementary measures, which could be contractual, uh, for example, challenging an obligation on a data importer to challenge a, uh, a request for data by a governmental authority in that country. They could be technical, such as encrypting data before it enters the importing country and not storing the encryption key in the importing country. But if, as in the United States, the laws did not provide an essentially equivalent level of protection, there needed to be a risk assessment, and those standard contractual clauses might need to be bolstered by supplementary measures. And there was subsequent guidance from the EU authorities on what, sup what those supplementary measures uh, could be. Clear as a mud, right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for, fortunately, though, the, the EU has issued updated SECs that at least incorporate some of the, of the additional requirements. Could you talk a little bit about those SECs, those new SECs, and how they address the uh, court Schrems II requirements? Sure. Well, so now, now the importer of data is required to uh, essentially agree to additional uh, contractual requirements, you know, much like what you described, uh, you know, challenging access requests when, when, uh, when permitted, uh, notifying the, the exporter of requests for data, um, th things of that sort. My impression is that companies are actually using these standard contractual clauses, just as before the Schrems II decision, they remain the dominant method of legitimating a cross-Atlantic data transfer. Have you seen that too, Chris? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, simply because uh, privacy field isn't available and um, most companies don't have VCRs. So as a practical matter, they're really the only option at this point. Pretty much the only game in town, unless you're big enough and uh, prominent enough to go for go for BCRs. So in early October, President Biden issued an executive order with the goal of promulgating the new EU-US data privacy framework that is intended to replace Privacy Shield. Chris, would you mind taking us through a few of the top issues and top um, changes in that executive order? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess the, the, the first thing to clarify is that uh, the EO only applies to signals intelligence. Um, so that's, it's limited to, to that, although I, obviously for purposes of SHREMS too, that's, that's a fairly important thing for, for data flows. 
Um, so what, what the EO does uh, is it limits uh, collection of signals intelligence to certain defined national security objectives. And there's about 12 of those, uh, which are more or less what, what you would expect, Think things like assessing foreign government or foreign military intentions, uh, assessing foreign terrorist organizations, uh, also protecting against cybersecurity threats. Um, so the, there's 12 of those that, that, are, that are itemized. Um, you can only, uh, we're limited to collecting uh, signals intelligence when it's necessary for a, a validated intelligence priority. Uh, and the, the collection has to take into account uh, privacy and civil liberties of, of everyone regardless of their country of residence. Uh, and the EO also includes some limiting principles. It's, it says signals intelligence can't be collected uh, for the purpose of suppressing criticism or dissent or, or free expression of, of political opinions. Um, it can't be used to uh, limit privacy interests or a right to counsel. Uh, it also can't be used to disadvantage people on the basis of, of protected characteristics like, like race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, uh, et cetera. Um, now, of course, we, we all remember uh, some of the Snowden revelations about bulk collection. There, there are additional limits uh, specifically when it comes to bulk collection. Um, so it, first is that the, the, there's a stated preference for targeted collection as opposed to bulk collection. Um, there also has to be a determination that bulk collection is necessary to advance a validated intelligence priority and can't be reasonably uh, obtained with targeted collection. And then there's a separate list of uh, valid intelligence purposes. Uh, and there, there's only six as, as opposed to the, the previous 12. Uh, and this covers things like terrorism, hostage taking, espionage, sabotage, uh, also uh, weapons of mass destruction as well. Uh, so not more or less what, what we would expect to, to, to see there. Um, there. I guess the biggest thing that the EO does though, uh, and this is what's getting a lot of the discussion, uh, is it creates a couple of uh, redress mechanisms uh, for citizens, quote, of qualifying states. Uh, and it doesn't actually say what, the, what those qualifying states are, but, um, you know, obviously it's the EU, but they do seem to leave open some room uh, to include other, other countries in there as well. Uh, but the, the, the two big things it does is it, it creates uh, a civil liberties protection officer uh, and that's going to be housed in, in the Director of National Intelligence's uh, office. Uh, and that person is going to be able to investigate complaints uh, and uh, determine remedial measures uh, where uh, the intelligence community has uh, run afoul, either of this EO or existing U.S. law. Uh, and then the other thing it does is it creates a data protection review court. 
which is going to be an independent body. Uh, the, the, the judges sitting on it are, are supposed to come from outside the U.S. government. Uh, and they need to have both privacy and national security uh, experience. Uh, so it's it's going to be interesting to see who, who gets selected for that uh, because uh, there's not a, a, a huge number of people, I think, with that combined uh, experience. It's a rare combination of skills indeed. Um, and companies will, ha uh, will self-certify to this just like they did with Privacy Shield, correct? Um, so that's for for the for the larger framework. Yes, I, I think that that is correct. There there's going to be a, a self certification uh, mechanism. So I guess the biggest question now is, will this pass muster under Schrems too? The European Con uh, Commission has made some favorable comments on the EO and the adoption of the new data privacy framework, and an adequacy decision is expected from the European Commission in the spring of 2023, but of course, Max Schrems is already making noises that the limitations uh, on signals intelligence gathering uh, are not sufficient, um, do not provide sufficient protection against uh, bulk surveillance of the Snowden sty style. And he's already threatening to challenge this just like he did uh, Safe Harbor and, and Privacy Shield. So for what it's worth, reading the tea leaves, I do think this constitutes a reasonable attempt uh, by the United States government to address the concerns about the lack of essentially equivalent protection raised by the EU CJ in the Schrems II decision. So uh, Chris, as you mentioned, uh, the limitations on signals intelligence gathering are new. And we also have, uh, I think, a very good faith attempt to establish an independent tribunal to resolve the data protection concerns of EU data subjects. So going back to Schrems II, one of the bases cited by the court in invalidating Privacy Shield is that the privacy ombudsperson was a creature, if you will, of the executive, uh, the executive branch, the Department of Commerce. And the executive branch is, of course, the same branch that's responsible for the agencies engaging in bulk surveillance activities. Uh, so this uh, data protection court uh, consisting of judges who have no other role in the United States government uh, is a good start, certainly. Uh, only time will tell whether, uh, whether this will be sufficient to raise the independence or to address the independence concerns raised in Trims to, or whether they want something truly like a, a creature of the judicial branch, some truly independent branch of government, uh, which it seems to me would, would require a, a constitutional um, reworking, to say the least. Uh, anything else, Chris, on the subject of the EO or the di uh, data privacy framework? Uh, yeah, I guess the, the only other comment I make is I, 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 I agree with you, more or less. Uh, I, I think there's there's enough in the EU that if the ECJ wants to get out of the way and, and let uh, the data flow between the US and the EU, it could do it. Uh, but there's also enough not in there that it could go the other way. Uh, and I, I think that it's too soon to know. 
Yeah, well said. I am tentatively optimistic. I, I do think that there is uh, significant impetus on both sides of the Atlantic to resolve this problem, to dispel this cloud which has existed over transatlantic data transfers till uh, since July 2020. But uh, I guess we'll have to wait next year, till next year to find out. Thanks, Chris. Any uh, final thoughts on this topic, Chris? No, I mean, I, I think this this is a very interesting uh, area. It, it's uh, a, obviously a rapidly changing area of law. Uh, so I, I suspect uh, people will want to stay tuned. A rapidly changing area of law, indeed. And you can be sure that there'll be more podcasts from Cyber Law Monitor as these new developments unfold. I want to thank everybody for listening today. My guest today has been Christopher Dotson of Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Group. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Happy to be here. Take care, everybody, and please stay safe. <music>